0: Would you open your Bibles to First Timothy, chapter four? Uh, we'll be in verses one through five today. First Timothy four one to five. Uh, this is page nine ninety two of the Church Bible. If you want to use one of those, it's right there under the rack in front of you. The little uh, black hardback books there, or the Bibles. As you're turning there, um, I'll just mention uh, this sort of setting the message in context. Most of you are familiar with the concept of human trafficking. We have uh, probably most of us heard that terminology as it's used in our day, but but human trafficking involves using force or coercion to obtain some type of labor or um, prostitution or other such acts, but force or coercion to bring that about. And it, it is one of the most despicable and heinous crimes committed against humanity. Uh, in our day or or really in any day. I mean, modern day slavery of its own sort is demonic at its core for sure, but the basic strategies employed in uh, trafficking people on a physical level to take people captive in all of those ways, those same basic strategies are used at a spiritual level to draw people away from Christ and take them captive to false philosophies and the worship of false gods and whatever else would keep them from God. The same strategies basically are employed in a lot of ways. And so I've titled this message, Victims of Spiritual Trafficking, in that way. You may have seen that on your bulletin, but it is to, is to observe Uh, that what's true in the physical is also true in the spiritual. And that's what we get a description of, those victims uh, and their captors and their captivity in 1 Timothy 4, 1-5. So let's look at that together now. And as is our practice, I'll ask you if you'll... What did I just say? 1 Timothy 4. I probably said 3 somewhere and... uh, oops about that. I'm going to read four, and uh, if the words that come out on the screen don't read what's on the screen, how about that? I apologize if that's, uh, I am quite sure that's my error. But it's a good servant who takes the blame, even though it's probably mine. So <laughs> First Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Read now the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars who bid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray together. Well, God, we do thank you for a living and true word. Thank you, Lord, for the spirit who gives life to it and who gives life to us. And God, we're just praying that today, you would cause your word to come alive to us. That of all of the needs and backgrounds, experiences represented in this room, that somehow you would minister this truth to all of our hearts according to our need and your desire to speak to those needs. So, Lord, we pray that you would speak your word by your spirit through your servant and to your people for your glory and our good always. And I ask, God, that you would move me out of the way, that my voice would simply be an instrument for you to speak through in a way I do not understand, but that you surely prove to be true. Would you do it again today? In Christ's name, amen. And you may be seated. Well, in the last few years, there have been uh, some rather high-profile Christians, even pastors, who have abandoned the Christian faith. I think I've maybe made reference to those, uh, some of those, in times past. But they've said um even explicitly in at least one case I, I no longer believe i am not in any sense a christian anymore and i've just left the faith departed altogether that's the kind of experience that paul describes here in this passage in verse 1 in particular where he says some will depart from the faith or another translation's fall away from the faith. In the, in the Greek, the word here gives us our word apostasy, if you're familiar with that word. It's, if you've not sort of been a part of the church and kind of been around the Christian community, that might not be a familiar word um, because I guess it's particularly applied to the Christian faith. But, but different than just false teaching, apostasy is really an abandonment of falling away from the faith altogether. And in the process, again, by sort of by definition, they exchange the truth of the gospel for some alternative belief system, some alternative way of life. It's different than just backsliding or falling into sin. Okay. We have those people we know by acquaintance or family relationship or whatever, sometimes people who um, aren't walking as if they're a Christian, right? You know those kind of people, they've made a profession of faith, their life doesn't seem to measure up to that and you're wondering what's really going on with them. They may just be sort of fallen into sin and will repent and, and come back. Apostasy is really something altogether different in that it's just a, a renunciation of the faith even though initially it might look a lot like backsliding. You don't know whether that person is just falling into a season of sin or falling away altogether. But apostasy is that. And it transpires in different ways. Here you notice Paul talks about it happening by way of people who are uh, liars, hypocritical liars, people who are teaching false things, and by that deception leading others away from Christ and from uh, the faith that he's handed down to the saints hypocritical liars who it says there their consciences are seared as with the branding iron it says in uh, in some translations you have the picture of that right of what that looks like to be branded with a branding iron the, the the people's consciences here the teachers here have their consciences seared such that they are deadened and desensitized, you know, toughened or whatever. You you get the picture there. We get the word cauterize from this Greek word, if that helps picture just how hardened these people's hearts are. In other words, they're deceivers, and they know they're deceiving people. They're hypocritical. They're insincere in their lie telling. They know they're leading people away even though they don't disclose that at first. We're, we're getting a little, just a little bit of a window into the false teaching that Paul said to Timothy was going on. He, he speaks to it. Timothy obviously knows all about it. We as the readers don't know a whole lot, but there's a little bit of a disclosure here um, of, of what's transpiring. And again, some of this presumably is even coming from elders of the church. And as I said in that first message, the only thing worse than a wolf in sheep's clothing is a wolf in the shepherd's clothing because the people are coming to them to to receive the truth and have the truth ministered to them. And rather than that, they're being deceived knowingly by people whose consciences have been cauterized. And then it describes, of course, part of the, the bondage of their captivity that it comes along with uh, uh, you know people being forbid forbidden from marrying, uh, requiring abstinence from certain foods and that kind of thing and that that is really, really commonly a part of such bodies of false teaching that there become some kinds of physical external requirements of that sort. But as I mentioned before all of this follows, In some way, how how that unfolds follows some of the same basic strategies that human traffickers follow. And you you probably see and uh, hear about these news stories as often as I do. It goes on every day and night right here in our city and all over the place. There are frequent stories about it. Just last week on Good Morning America, there was a story... Um, that was run, and I, I didn't see that on that particular Good Morning, but um, but saw online this uh, story posted last week. But it's about a man named Larry Ray, Lawrence Ray, that he, after getting out of prison some years ago, he asked his daughter if he could uh, kind of bunk with her, That if he could kind of hang out at her place for a while as he transitioned. Her place at the time was a college apartment at Sarah Lawrence College. She said yes, he could, and so Larry Ray moved into this college apartment with his daughter, befriended her roommates, and began having what he called therapy sessions with them. I don't know what qualified him as a recently released uh, convict from prison uh, to administer that, but somehow they trusted him in that way. He learned intimate details of their lives, would eventually move many of them to a New York City apartment, and along the way subjected them to physical, psychological, and sexual abuse. He was ultimately charged with sex trafficking, extortion, and forced labor, extorted nearly a million dollars from those students and their parents. Some of them took out lines of credit, had parents empty accounts on their behalf. I don't know, again, exactly how that transpired, and it was over a period of time. He deprived them of food and sleep, took explicit photos, even prostituted one young female. Some of those victims later reported that like cult leaders often do, Larry tried very deliberately to separate them from their family and friends. This was part of the strategy, and it is very often, it is in the playbook of traffickers to, do, to make that maneuver there, almost always. The mother of one of those girls tried desperately to lead her daughter out of that situation, and as she later would speak about a phone call with her daughter, the mother reported this. She said, I don't believe you, mom. I don't believe you could have loved me. And that's when I knew he had total control of her. You can maybe try to imagine that experience as a parent or even as a young woman. But that story, while sickening, was the most recent one that i could find like i said i go looking for such things as i'm as i'm writing sermons and these illustrations come to mind i go look and you can find about this kind of thing just about any given week around the around the country but this story and ones like it have parallels in the way in the way those people are lured away taken captive, held captive, and then manipulated uh, at the direction of deceitful people. And so let's notice in First Timothy 4 here, this passage we just read, uh, four characteristics of spiritual trafficking that we would see as analogous to uh, those in stories like Larry Ray. Number one, victims of spiritual trafficking don't have a secure relationship with their Heavenly Father. Victims of spiritual trafficking don't have a secure relationship with their Heavenly Father. Frequently, human trafficking victims um, have that that profile in common. Very often, if you do some reading and research about this kind of thing, there are young women who don't have a father figure at all, or they have a really a strange relationship with their father or it might be abusive or whatever. It's, a, it's not always the case, but a common denominator in many of them. But in the case of spiritual trafficking victims, it's always the case that the person lured away from Christ who abandons the faith, who apostatizes, does not have a secure relationship with their heavenly father. Jesus said in John uh, ten twenty-seven to 29, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Those who are secure in their relationship with the Father are held by him and nobody is able to snatch them out of their hand. And those who fall away from the faith don't just accept other ideas. That's how we talk about it and think about it a lot of times. They don't just embrace other ideas. What the text says here is they actually follow other spirits who are the source of those ideas. Did you pick up on that? In verse one, they devote themselves to deceitful spirits. In other words, they they have made an exchange, the devotion that belongs to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, that is exchanged and assigned to deceitful spirits. And it says the teaching that they embrace is demonic, even though it comes through insincere liars. We don't think of this as being true either. But they devote themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. Demonic teaching is what leads people away from Christ, which means that the enemy uses human instruments just like God does. You know, God uses us to proclaim the gospel, to, to pray for one another, to minister and build each other up in all kinds of ways, right? We marvel sometimes at why does God use people like us? Why does he need us? Well, he doesn't need us, but he uses people anyway to accomplish his purposes on the earth, right? You know that's true, right? Okay, I'm just I know I know you lost an hour of sleep. I'm just, <laughs> just trying to keep you keep you with me here. But the but the point is that the, the the enemy does the same thing. He used human instruments to accomplish his purposes. The devil doesn't need you to worship him in order to have you ensnared. See, there are people who fall away from the Christian faith, never think. Probably They never think of themselves as being ensnared by deceitful spirits. They don't think of themselves as given over to doctrines of demons. So we have mental images of what it looks like for somebody to be given over to Satan, right? I mean, we have pictures of that. But you don't have to be out in the woods, you know, in the dark, dressed in a goat skin with the skull of a yak on your head, you know, sacrificing babies on a bonfire—like that—he doesn't need you doing that in order to have you in his grip. It will suffice for you just to give yourself over to some other teaching that leads you away from Christ. He's quite content with that, and he's quite content if it's very religious teaching that you're given over to you, uh, given over to as well. If it takes you away from Jesus, that'll be just fine. That is the doctrines of demons as well as any other. and so the most important remedy to all of that is maintaining an affectionate relationship with the Lord. and see, we talk about relationship all the time, and this can this can even start sounding like trite and oversimplified, just just you know again, so second nature to us that we forget the significance of it. But we need to remember that the the spiritual disciplines we, we engage in, like our Bible reading and prayer and even fasting, they are not ultimately about how to live, but about whom to love. And see, so you, can, you, can, you can read the Bible, you can go to all the marriage classes, you can go to all the how to manage your money according to Christian principles classes, the parenting classes, all of the Christian living classes, and not know Christ himself. And that ought to make us tremble more often than it does. But those who are trafficked spiritually don't have a secure relationship with their heavenly Father. Second, spiritual trafficking victims get disconnected from their church family and community. They get disconnected from church, family and community. Again, human trafficking almost invo- always involves the kind of separation from family and friends that was described in the story I just recounted to you a little earlier. Like, it, it, is, it is textbook strategy. One way or another, they will, they will lead people away from family and friends so that they can go about their work of manipulation. Usually, that, that'll, that'll be a physical separation, and then they will convince the person, things like this young woman said, Mom, you, I don't believe you ever could have loved me. They create a kind of emotional distance and maybe exploiting one that's already there. Probably the only exceptions to that are when trafficking victims are actually trafficked by their parents, which happens sometimes, and it's almost unthinkable how that could be true. But they're lured away from safe places, whether they're just away at college, they run away from home to a a larger city, they catch a flight to rendezvous with some person they met online. And I've heard about all, those are real stories. But they get separated from family. Well, spiritually this happens when people are drawn away from the church and from the covering of church authority. And this isn't hard to find opportunity for this at all in our day, it's never been easier since many professing believers now have such a low regard for the church and if we're honest about it I mean the church has done its fair share of things to earn a low regard in the minds of people the church in its different expressions have have been the abusers so we've we've certainly uh, as a people made it easier for people to distance themselves from the church. But you'll find in, in plenty of places a situation where loosely whatever context, and they think of that as being the church. They're the church because the church is just you know a group of believers, and so wherever you might gather, that's the church. And I think I've suggested before the leader or teacher of that assembly, wherever it is, might be some guy or gals picked up the Bible as if nobody in 2,000 years ever read it right before. And they'll become the teacher interpreting the Bible as if nobody ever interpreted it right before. And they're enlightening this group of people who's now separated themselves from the church in any other way that might bring correction or question to that error. And they've been lured away from a safe place. And so we'd be advised or, or, or cautioned that when somebody, when you know somebody who's always wanting to teach outside the covering of spiritual authorities, it might be because spiritual authorities don't want them teaching inside the covering of spiritual authorities. The reason they're teaching somewhere off on their own is because there is no pastor or or body of elders who allow them to teach in the church context because of something they know about them personally or their teaching. But when somebody is wanting always to sort of be outside the orbit of the church and yet sort of self-declare that they are a teacher that you ought to listen to, you, you you might want to avoid them because those are the mechanisms by which people get disconnected from from a spiritual family and from spiritual community. And that's where people are vulnerable to really just being carried away to a a departure from the faith, never to return to Christ himself. They don't have a secure relationship with their heavenly father. They get disconnected from their church, family, and community. Number three, They're deceived into believing lies of a variety of sorts. As I said, human traffickers lie to their victims. In a number of ways, again, as I read stories about this, um, very often it'll be the lies about the good things that will be offered to them if they will come meet this guy okay, or this man whoever it is. Good things that are gonna happen, and, and often they deliver initially. Buy them gifts, take them to nice places, sort of making good on the promise. And, and, and often what'll follow from, from that, somewhere along the way, uh, they'll have some young girl send them explicit photos, or they'll take photos of them and then say, oh, if you don't do what I tell you, I'm going to post these. I'm going to send these to your parents. It becomes this, it's, it's, it's a manipulative lie that they use about the good things that will happen um, if you come be with me and then it will turn to the bad things that will happen to you if you don't comply. That's the ploy. And see, I mean, it is, no, it is totally unsurprising that there are these parallels in the physical and the spiritual because the same adversary is at work behind both of them. and His schemes are the same, whether it's manifest uh, physically or spiritually. When you see the uh, controlling, manipulative, lying voices... It is a sure sign the devil is at work in it. But verse one says that on a spiritual level, those who depart from the faith devote themselves to deceitful spirits and insincere liars. We looked at that before. Deceit is only deceiving because it's partially true, right? If it was utterly false, it would be recognizable as utterly false. What's deceiving about it is when some part of it is true. It's how Satan tempted Eve in the garden. It's how he tried to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. Taking some truth and then twisting it, very often making it sound attractive and affirming at first, but then it becomes controlling and destructive. Now what that means is that there is certain teaching that can sound 70% Christian, and yet it's 100% demonic. I mean, have you ever thought about it in those terms? Doctrines of demons, you can have have teaching that's 70% Christian, 80% Christian. It's actually 100% demonic. But the 70 or 80% is what makes it deceitful because it sounds true enough. And especially when it's spun to be good for me, when it's what I want to hear, when it somehow serves my own interests or affirms what I already believe and, and affirms that I'm the one who's right and everybody else is wrong. All of those kinds of things. They're textbook demonic schemes. And maybe the worst part of all of this is that when people abandon the faith, they think they've found the truth elsewhere. Again, that's not... that's. I suppose, by definition, that's true. Uh, in every case, it's, it, people are not always conscious that they have they've, they've embraced that something else must be true because Christianity is false. But they're deceived into believing lies. Number four: spiritual uh, trafficking victims are required to do things they shouldn't be required to do. Again, one of the, the parallels here is they're required to do things they shouldn't be required to do. I put in parentheses here asceticism, and I don't know if you're familiar with that word, but it's you know, depriving the flesh in some way, usually for some kind of religious or spiritual reasons. Verse 3 mentions that the false teachers in Ephesus here forbid marriage, and require abstinence from certain foods. And see, again, this is the kind of thing that often often this is revealed later. By the time young women who have been trafficked, by the time they are being required to do things they know they ought not to be required to do, they are in so deep that they they often just don't see a way of getting out of it. And maybe some of them can't get out of it. You know, there are there are probably girls and young women in our city right now, this morning, who are exactly in that place that last night, all day yesterday, they were they were required to do things they know they ought not to be required to do, but they are so ensnared by the whole system, the relationship and everything else. Things that they've done, maybe they've committed crimes in the process, and they're told if you if you, if you go tell the police, I'll tell them all the things you do. Whatever. They're in so deep, they don't see any ways, way out. And spiritually, when this happens, it's kind of the same thing. People don't realize that, that there's religious uh, requirements of this sort being wrapped up around them like a constrictor of some sort. It just happens slowly and, and painlessly until it's finally choking the life out of them. But those kind of practices, forbidden marriage, requiring absence from certain foods, that's called asceticism. Um, in some milder and, and, and temporary uh, varieties, that can even be profitable for spiritual day or for a couple of meals or for two or three days, whatever the case may be. I mean, that can be profitable for spiritual growth. But even that, not to be mandated by somebody else, that somebody somebody else doesn't tell you when and how frequently you fast and what you have to abstain for, from and that kind of thing. And interestingly enough, it's been common for cults or newer religious movements to practice uh, forms of, of abstinence or asceticism in a variety of ways. The, the Shakers, if you're familiar with that uh, movement that started back in the 18th century, uh, they did not permit sex even among married couples. It would, wouldn't be surprising to know that they finally died out. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, Mormons don't partake of alcohol or caffeine. I mean, and they sort of require that people don't. Um, there are others of that sort, but it, it often comes with those kinds of requirements, it might initially sound like something that's totally libertine and liberating. You're totally, this whatever this spiritual um, movement is, it, it might sound totally freeing at first. There almost always is a jagged edge on the other edge of that thing, and it often entails some kind of ascetic practices like this. But if we connect the dots, we connect the dots. Well, what Paul just said to Timothy, that this kind of restrictive religious externalism is a demonic work. He's he's perfectly glad to twist. It is, again, his go-to strategy to twist good things that God has done, good things that God has created, good things that God has revealed, to just twist it in some way. Um, to make it no longer be good. And those kind of religious external practices are that way. They masquerade as holiness. Right? I and mean, sometimes sometimes people would define holiness as not doing certain things. It's not smoking, you know, not drinking, not going to certain movies and uh, any of those may be good and advisable things to abstain from, you understand? That's really not the issue. It's just when that becomes required by somebody and that becomes a masquerade for holiness, you find very often those people lack the kind of in- inward purification that Jesus actually requires. Right? It's easier to avoid certain foods or other practices than it is to have my wicked heart cleansed by the power of the Holy Spirit over the course of a lifetime. Have you found that difficult? I have found that difficult. That's harder than deciding I'm not going to eat, drink, you know, smoke, whatever the case may be. But whenever there's a body of teaching that includes those kind of restrictions, you should be alarmed. And again, the analogy still holds that by the time people discover that, uh, very often they are in deep, With a cult. It all sounded good and it all sounded right for a period of time and then they get way in deep and aren't sure how to how to get out. Well that it doesn't always have to be, people do not require uh, cults to give them sufficient reason for abandoning the faith. It happens, as I said, even with pastors who, who simply over some period of time go, you know what? I don't believe. I suppose I never really did. I'm not a Christian in any respect and I'm saying goodbye to the whole thing. But those who are victims of that kind of captivity, who are led astray never to return again, don't have a secure relationship with their father. They don't. They 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 believe uh, the lies. They're required to do things they ought not to do, and so forth. I don't want to minimize these kinds of issues. As I just conclude here, um, there are lots of people in our day. One of the reasons this. I was going to say one of the reasons I I preached this message, I preached this message, as I said before, because it it was the next message when I turned the page in the Bible, chapter 4. This is kind of the point of the message. But this is so pertinent to us in this day because there are more and more people, higher percentages of people in America, and really in Europe too, all over the West, abandoning the faith. It's more true of younger uh, Christians professing Christians who have grown up in the church than it is of any other generation. There's a higher percentage of young people, age 18 to 35, a higher percentage who, when surveyed about their religious affiliation, more said none uh, than evangelical Christians. There, more Americans age 18 to 35 have no religious affiliation at all than those who identify as evangelical Christian. It's it's not too far behind the percentage that identifies as Christian in any respect. Uh, something like 20, 26% or something like that. That doesn't include those that say they're outright agnostic and atheist. The people of just, younger people in particular, just abandoning the faith altogether. Now, my point in bringing that up is to say, I don't want to minimize the significance of this. I don't, I don't want to just sort of attach four points to a sermon outline and say, you know, here's the, sort of, here's the easy route to avoiding this kind of stuff. Don't be stupid, you know, whatever. I, that is not the message here. I don't want to minimize it. I don't want to downplay the significance of it. And I don't want to downplay the reality of doubts that people experience. That, that is real. And there are actually understandable reasons why people question the truth of the scriptures, the truth, the reality of the resurrection, and on and on you fill in the blank. So I I wanted to conclude by acknowledging that in part to say, if that's true of you today, if you're sitting here, you have doubts, your own serious doubts. um, Number one, I'm not downplaying that. Number two, I'd love to speak with you. I'm going to actually stay right down here at the conclusion um, of the message, at the conclusion of the service. And um, if you'd be so willing, I mean, I'd I'd love if you uh, came and, Share that with me. Ask questions, perhaps, or things that you're struggling with. And if not right here, um, if you'll reach out to me by email, phone, whatever, um, I'll, I'll, uh, I would love to sit down and just talk and, and sort of participate with you in the wrestling through those kind of issues. I have a greater respect for somebody who asks hard questions in pursuit of the truth, than someone who mindlessly accepts it because they probably are not any more secure in their faith many times. The one who's mindlessly accepted things as the one who's really wrestled to arrive at the truth. But all of that as believers, we, 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 it ought to drive us back to the feet of Jesus, knowing we, we are desperately dependent on him to hold us fast that we're known by a father who holds us and nobody can snatch us out of his hands. But we, we we ought to be reminded of the fact that apart from that, I am no more secure in my faith than every one of those pastors that's wandered away and renounced the faith. And neither are you. And so we ought to flee to him and cling to him and make... Uh, above all things, our whole spiritual life and our disciplines about whom we love and not just how we live. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, thank you for your faithfulness to your people, your love for your children. And God, for the sobering truth that this is to us as your people. God I pray that you would reach out, reach down and and lay hold of some of your beloved who are questioning and doubting and and prone to wander even right now. Maybe are poised considering that first step in a long walk away from the Christian faith altogether and once and for all as far as they're concerned. I pray God you would, you would intervene in that situation, that you would renew their sense of love for you, that you would, you would birth in them maybe a love they've never known. But God, I pray that even for those who feel totally secure, as there are those who may feel more secure than they ought, that you would make abundantly clear where we stand in relationship to you. And that we would press into you, that we would long above everything on this earth to know you more, that our lives would be defined and changed by that fact. So have your way in our hearts. We always ask, we ask in a special way with regard to this message in Jesus' name, amen.